All right, everybody, welcome. You may have a seat, turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. Book of Judges. I wished I had left this one for Pete and that I had gotten to do Joshua, but it didn't turn out that way. So, but I know Pete did a great job taking us through. Um, through our study in Joshua last Wednesday, and that brings us right here to Judges and things in Joshua where you left off in Joshua, things were looking pretty good for Israel. Things were on the up and up. They've moved into their land. They begun to take territory. But here now in Judges, unfortunately, we see how quick things can change. And change for the worst they did as we begin to look through judges here. Israel has had great leadership in bringing them to where they are. All the way back even as we've been going through our Wednesday studies. All the way back to, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and then Joseph. And then we had Moses leading them out of Egypt. Leading them through the wilderness. Then Joshua as we saw bringing them into the promised land. Great men and instrumental men in carrying out God's purposes right for this nation of Israel. But even these men had flaws as we've seen. But God's desire in all this now really is to establish them as a nation that would follow him. Because God all along desired to be their king and to be their leader. But after Joshua died there was a a vacuum of leadership in a sense. More precisely, we begin to see that there was an unwillingness to trust the Lord and to allow him to begin to guide them and lead them and, and equip them. Look at what we read here in Judges 1, verse 1 to 3. It says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I've delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with them. So notice that after the death of Joshua, what does people say? Who shall go up for us? Who shall be first to go up? There's kind of like this, this vacuum of leadership. Now, it's nice to see that there's some cooperation going on. Judas to go forth, but then he calls out to Simon, hey, you know what? You come and, and you help me, and I will help you, basically. You go with me, and I'll go with you. This is great cooperation, but what it's showing ultimately is that there's a lack of trust for the Lord to lead them and for the Lord to help them and be with them and to give them the victories that they needed. There's a lack of trust in the Lord here. So chapter 1 opens up with seeing the nation of Israel continuing to take the land of Canaan. But then we see in Judges, it quickly begins to turn to the compromise in taking the land of Canaan. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Starting verse 27, we read this. <coughs> However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. We read on, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. That's important. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, 
so the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab, Akzib, Helba, Afik, or Rahab. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And it just goes on. What, what was one of the instructions that the Israelites had as they were to take the land? They were to drive out the Canaanites. Drive them out. Why? Was that just being ruthless? Well, listen, God had given them hundreds of years to repent. God had allowed the Canaanites to get right with him and not have to be driven out, but they did not. They continued to go into the spiral progression of sin and idolatry, sacrificing their own children. It was a sick and polluted people. And God says, I want to be sure that you're not going to be influenced by them. This is why when you come in the land, you're to drive them out. So what we read here is important because as we get now to Judges, Joshua's brought the people in the land, but now we're seeing compromise. But they did not drive out the, the, the Canaanites from the land. They did not completely do that work. And, and it says in chapter 2, at the end of verse 2, this angel of the Lord comes and speaks to Israel, and he says at the end of verse 2, of chapter two, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? That, that's clear. You've not obeyed. You've not followed. You've not done what I've asked you to for your own protection, for your own good, for your own health. So the people were rebuked and they repented and they served the Lord while Joshua was alive. And as long as the elders that had witnessed all the things that God had done, um, during that time period, as long as they were around, the people obeyed. But when they all died off, Joshua and all the others, a new generation rose up that did not know the Lord. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So this is now really the, the context of what we're seeing through the book of Judges. God's just given them the land. He's given them simple instructions, go in, wipe them out, and they could easily do that. But they chose not to obey him. And now we get to a point where this next generation rises up and where they're just blatantly serving the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Baals was the chief god of Canaan. He was this god of kind of rain, the weather god in a sense. Ashtoreth was the female counterpart for Baal. In fact, they, there was this, you know, fertility kind of practices that were involved. They believed that as, as Baal and Ashtoreth were kind of linked together, it just proliferated in this, in this health and, and wealth and blessing and, and fruitfulness through this fertility. And so their own sacrifices to these gods became that of a very sexual nature involving this fertility thinking that that you know we're worshiping the god that's going to bring fruitfulness and life and blessing for us and so we're going to act in that way as well 
And so this is where things just really begin to get worse and worse for this nation of Israel. At this point, the nation of Israel just spiraled down into what's known as the dark ages in the history of Israel. The book of Judges <laughs> lays out for us kind of the, the dark ages of Israel's history. Listen, this is a, a heavy book to go through. There's a lot of just sordid stuff that's taking place in this book here. It says in Judges 21, verse 25, the very last book, or the, sorry, the very last verse of this book, it kind of sums it all up for us. It says in that verse, the very last verse of this book, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what we're seeing through the book of Judges. Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. So this period of the judges that lasted almost 400 years, in it we see a, a, a repeated pattern taking place where Israel was for a time serving God and then Israel succumbing to sin and then Israel becoming slaves to sin, Israel sorry for their sin and then Israel being saved from their sin. This was a, a repeated pattern that took place like about seven times through the book of Judges where they're, they're serving the Lord, then they succumb to sin, they're slaves to sin, they're sorry about their sin, and then God saves them from their sin. It was this course of rebellion that led to retribution, which led to repentance and then to restoration. And yet through all this, this, this sad cycle, we see an amazing thing unfold. Because though we see Israel's compromise, we see God's compassion in all of that. Because I don't know how many little cycles I could take. I don't know how many cycles I could take of just this repeated progression where it just, you know, continues on and on. And yet, though Israel is filled with compromise, God is yet full of compassion towards them. Though we see Israel's unfaithfulness, we see God's faithfulness through this book. And he did that by raising up 13 judges through this book. And so, that idea of judges, now, you got to get out of your mind this kind of picture that we have of judges, you know, the black robe sitting at a, at a big desk with a wooden gavel, you know, really ready to, you know, preside over legal matters to pronounce someone guilty or not guilty. That's not the idea of judges that we have here, all right? These are not people ruling over civic or, or, or legal matters. Judges here that we're speaking of in that word really means this, this leader or deliverer more specifically here. That's what God is raising up here, these deliverers for the people of Israel to bring them and free them out from the bondage that they got themselves in because of their sin and rebellion to God. So this book is, a, like I said, a very dark and sordid read in it. We see the depravity of man and the results of the rebellion against God. And, and though Israel was unfaithful, God continues to be faithful and he raises up these judges to free Israel from the predicament that they've put themselves in because of their, their rebellion against God. So as we continue on in, in chapter two, we see a prologue really being given, this, this kind of introductory material, more so a summary of what's gonna be taking place through this book. So, so look at chapter two, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14, we'll read to the end of the chapter, and in this, this is going to give us really just basically a summary of what we're going to be seeing to the book of Judges, okay? Here's what it says. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, 
So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Verse 19, and it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua." So as soon as the judge died, they reverted back to even more corruption. And that corruption led to their own slavery to sin and their, their bondage to other nations. And then they'd get sorry about that. Oh, now we see the error of our ways. And then they'd cry out to the Lord. And the Lord would send a deliverer, raise them up and, 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 and set them free. And they would enjoy a period of, of rest and freedom for a time until that judge died out. Then they, as it says, reverted back again. This was the cycle that just continued on to take place. Well, Here's the outline that we're going to be seeing as we go through this book. Apathy, chapters 1 to 2. Apostasy, chapters 3 to 16. And then just flat out anarchy in chapters 17 to 21. Some very, very sad chapters that, that end the book here. And now here's the judges that are going to be raised up. There's going to be 13 judges in all that are going to be raised up that are going to be these deliverers for Israel, all right? And so we're going to kind of summarize many of them and, and look through some of the things that were done. So the Lord's going to use these individuals to bring deliverance for Israel out of their enemies' hands. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Verse 5, thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites, all of those. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served they're gods. Sad. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, 
Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord, it says, came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So Othniel here, that we read about, he's the first judge for Israel. And he carries out this work through the spirit of the Lord. Notice what it said there in verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And, and that's just how it is for all of us, understanding that we can do nothing apart from the work of the Lord in us. Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's, that should be the model for every believer. It's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so with these judges, we're going to see a common thing taking place, that the spirit of the Lord is going to come upon them. They didn't have the benefit that we as believers today, New Testament believers have, where we are, are, are um, given the Holy Spirit, but also filled with the Holy Spirit as we continue to yield ourselves where, to the Lord where the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit in Old Testament times came upon specific people for specific purposes to carry out the work of the Lord. It wasn't something they had that continued upon them as we as a church get to enjoy today. So Othniel, the first judge, next judge is Ehud, and he's an interesting guy. And it makes special note there in verse 15 of chapter three that he was a left-handed man. Any left-handed people here today? Hey, all right, left-handers, well done. Well, listen, being left-handed, no big deal today, of course, right? But being left-handed back then was kind of seen as a curse. This was a, a, a real shame. It was a sign of weakness and kind of viewed as a handicap in a sense. But the Lord uses this left-handed man to carry out a great work. I love that. You know, I love what 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And so God is doing that here with this man, Ehud, who's a man that typically would be overlooked. Oh, you're a left-handed man. We can't use you. In battle, there's, there's weakness there. You don't have the strength that us right-handed men have, right? So he'd be overlooked. But here's the guy that God chooses to use. I love that. I think that's so cool. Now, here's what's happening is that they're under... Um, they are under this king uh, of Moab, Israelites. They're, they're having to pay tribute to this king. They're in bondage to the king of Moab. And so the people of Israel sent their tribute through Ehud. This was the annual paying of taxes to the king, which, which gave Ehud this opportunity, this audience to go before the king of Moab and to carry out the Lord's will now in being this deliverer for Israel. And we begin to see why God chose a man like Ehud, because in wanting to see the king privately, as he asks for, well, the king would have guards, and the guards would no doubt come and check out this person and say, who are you? Why do you want to see the king? Well, it's, you know, pat you down, make sure. They didn't have, you know, metal detectors, so they're patting him down. Well, sometimes they might get a little lazy. And typically, they would, you know, just check the left thigh where they would keep their weapons, because right-handed, you would have your sword or your dagger right there in the left thigh to pull out like that. 
But Ehud, we'll find out, is going to have his dagger on his right thigh. Did I say right thigh before? Left thigh. Right hand goes to the left thigh. So left-handed Ehud has his dagger on the right thigh. And they seem to not check it. Don't worry about it. Maybe they see that, oh, this guy's, this guy's too weak to cause any problems. We'll let him in. And so Ehud is granted this audience before the king. He's posing no threat. Now, I wonder how many people in Israel were kind of wondering, God, you're going you're gonna to use who now? You're going to use Ehud? Ehud's going to be our, our deliverer? How can he be of any help to us? How are you going to work through him? And yet we see the wonderful things that God can accomplish when there's just simply a willing vessel and an obedient heart. So let's see how the story kind of unfolds. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. We'll read a little bit here. It's just, it, this is fun stuff. Verse 16. So Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Why they need to say that, I don't know, but just letting us know this man is a large man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him, now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chambers. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt or the, the handle of that dagger went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out oh how glorious isn't that just lovely then notice we read on verse 23 then ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them when he'd gone out eglon's servants came to look and to their surprise the doors of the upper room were locked so they said he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber you know what they're saying here he's on the can right he's he's busy we're not, we're not going to disturb him. He's a big man. He's got some business to take care of, so we're not going to disturb them. And notice that in verse 25. So they waited till they were embarrassed. <laughs> they're saying, they're going, this is taking a really long time, even for Eglon here. This isn't cool. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Verse 28, then he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the forge of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Wow. So that's a pretty remarkable account there. Interesting stuff that the Bible has for us, isn't it? But when it says in verse 22 that his entrails came out, you know, the King James Version says that the dirt came out. And, and, and I, I just want to not, I'm not trying to be gross or like that, but what I, I see with that is like, what has he got? He's got a double-edged dagger 
a double-edged sword. What does that remind you of? The word of God that is like a double-edged sword, right? It's living and it's powerful. And so this is the key as we have this sword that we allow this word of God to penetrate us. What does it do? It begins to remove the dirt. It begins to bring a cleansing agent to us. That's why we're not just about going through the word of God, but we're interested in the word of God going through us, penetrating into the innermost parts that allows the junk to kind of, you know, get removed. It brings a purifying result. So that's what a, a neat little analogy we see here with Ehud and, and the work that he did. But I read all that just to kind of give you some idea now as to what God's doing. Israel's coming into subjection of different nations, and he's raising up to deliver. That's going to come. That's going to do a work in raising up now the nation of Israel to, to defeat these people as they've cried out to the Lord. And so now they enjoy this 80-year period of rest. It's the longest period in, the, in, the, in this period of Judges. The, this is the longest amount of time that they enjoyed any kind of freedom uh, like this, Okay under the judges. Now the next judge was Shamgar. Uh, just one verse mentioned about him. He um, took just simply an ox goat and killed 600 men of the Philistines, it says. So another deliverer that raised up. And the next one that we see now is Deborah. Notice that as soon as the previous deliverer died, things went south quickly. Look at chapter four, verse one. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Hashur, or Harosheth, Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he'd harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Very interesting here. Things got so bad now, that there was no men willing to stand up, willing to, to take the lead here. So God uses a woman. She's a prophetess, it tells us. And we've seen other, other female prophets or prophetesses through God's word. Now, this would have been somewhat of a humiliating thing in this male-dominated society. In fact, God is going to end up using two women here, Deborah and Jael. Now, Brack is another figure that rises to prominence in this account, uh, and, and sometimes he's, he's lumped into the kind of list of, of judges here, but uh, we, we got to mention up there, but primarily it's Deborah that's really, again, leading the way and, and being this judge or deliverer now. And so Brack's a, a big part of this, but he had to get called to action by Deborah, all right? He was a general in the army, but he had to, he had to be directed by Deborah what to do and, and, to, and to get into battle. And then it tells us in verse 8 that he wouldn't even go unless Deborah goes with him. So this guy's got no, he's got no courage here, right? He's got no strength. He's like, Deborah, you got to come with me. You got to go with me or else I don't want to go. That's what Brock says here, this, this general, this captain of the army. So Deborah goes and Brock and Deborah pursued the army of the Canaanites and, and Sisera, the Canaanite commander, fled. But this is where Jael comes onto the scene and ends up driving a tent peg into the temple of this man, Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, while he's sleeping. 
She just takes his tent peg and just hammers it right through his skull, kills him, takes him out. Again, God using a woman to do what he was desiring and, and wanting to raise up a man to do here. And then in chapter five, Deborah and Brock sing their great praise song of God's deliverance. Now that's interesting. The first praise song we see in the Bible is in Exodus 15. The last praise song we see in the Bible is in Revelation 15, both of which speak of deliverance. And here's Deborah and Barak singing out this song of deliverance that God has done. And, and I think, you know, for us here, are we those that, that have a song to sing? And it's not of the country genre where your spouse left you, your dog died, your truck broke down. It's not that kind of thing, but it's a song of just great praise and, and, and thankfulness for the fact that we've been delivered, set free by Jesus Christ, that he has done the work for us, that we are free in him. We of all people have reason to sing and rejoice. Let it not be because of or let it be because, you know, a, a song you're, you're waiting to sing. Let it not be something that you're saying, well, I'll sing a song when I see God do this. Let it be something that we just are, are naturally singing forth because of what Jesus has already done and accomplished for us. Well, chapters 6 to 9 bring us to a very familiar story with a very well-known judge, Gideon. And he also was a very unlikely judge. Gideon, look at chapter 6 and, and look at verse 11. Judges 6, verse 11. Here's what we read. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in, in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abbey's right, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, this is interesting. We see repeatedly through the book of Judges this angel of the Lord appearing on the scene. Remember, angel of the Lord, we're speaking of this pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ here. The, uh, uh, I think I read is about a, a fourth of Old Testament um, you know, appearances of the angel of the Lord take place in, in the book of Judges. Interestingly enough, in this time where the nation's history was just so dark, here's the Lord designed to come in and, and, and bring some light to them if they would only simply follow and obey him. So here's the angel of the Lord coming and calling out to Gideon. It says in verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, this is kind of humorous because Gideon is anything but a mighty man of valor right now. What does it tell us in verse 11? That he's threshing wheat in the wine press. This is not the natural place to be threshing wheat. In fact, you would do it on the threshing floor up on the mountaintop where the winds would be blowing through and, and allow the, the chaff from that wheat just to be blown away. But Gideon is down at the bottom of the mountain at the wine press trying to hide out and not be seen by the, by the Midianites. He's threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide from the Midianites, it says in verse 11. So I could just imagine this angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon. Hey there, you mighty man of valor. I can just imagine Gideon like, looking behind him. Is there somebody else here? <laughs> that can't be me. He's like worried. He's feeling threatened right now. And here's this angel speaking to him in this way. I think that's so cool. Why would the angel call him that? Because God sees people not for what they are, 
but for what he knows they can become. And God sees and knows what Gideon is going to accomplish and what he's going to do. Oftentimes, the Lord will call us based on what he knows us to become, not for what we are. And Gideon is going to be somebody here. Now, it takes a bit of time. Gideon, as you know the story, he, he lays out a couple of fleeces because he's just wanting some assurance as to, Lord, are you really calling me to do this? Are you really going to provide the victory for me? So he provides a couple of fleeces in a, very, in, in a way that it, it's a very supernatural work. It's very clear this is the Lord, right? I, I hear some people continuing today to throw out fleeces, you know, modeling it after Gideon. Listen, uh, uh, a fleece isn't something that we needed. Gideon didn't need to throw these fleeces. He just needed to simply rest in the grace and the goodness of God. But yeah, it's funny today, some people throw these fleeces like in a very natural way, right? You know, well, if I come home and there's, you know, a message on my phone, well, then I, I know that's of the Lord, then that, that God wants me to do this thing. And I've heard people say some, you know, very weird things. Gideon's was very supernatural. It could only be God that could do that, right? You know, so, um, but yeah, we need to be more just confident in, in what God's called us to do, not, not trying to put out the, well, Lord, okay, I'll go if you provide this sign for me or do this for me. We need to trust the Lord in this. So, nevertheless, God's good. He, he answers that fleece. Gideon knows, okay, time to move forward. So Gideon's ready to roll. And he goes out with his army, and he gets themselves ready to face off with the Midianites. He comes to the, to the well of, of Harad, um, and he's camped out real, real close to the, the battle lines that the Midianites have drawn. And there's 32,000 in the army of Gideon. There's 135,000 of the Midianites. This is four to one odds, all right? There's four Midians against every one Israelite. And you know what God says? God has some, well, he says, there's too many. There's too many here. Look at what we read in chapter seven, verse two and three. Judges chapter seven, verse two says this, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead, and 22,000 of the people return, and 10,000 remain. I can imagine Gideon being one of those guys that is like kind of taking a step backwards, trying to go with the 22,000 that are fleeing home. And God's like, Gideon, wait, not you. The rest can go, not you. You stay, you know? And now he's left with only 10,000. That's 14 to 1 odds at this point. 10,000 against 135,000 Midianites. And the Lord still says, there's still too many. And another test ensues. Whoever goes down to the water and drinks by bringing their hands to their mouths, they're gonna stay. All those that just get right down, put their mouths to the water and lap it up like a dog while those guys are going home. And now the army drops down to 300. 300 against 135,000, 450 to one odds. Could you imagine being Gideon in that situation? Think about some of the things that you faced. But here's, what does God say? There's, there's too many lest you take glory for this. If I set this up in a way, God says, where you feel like we've been able to do this, well then, I don't get the glory. Do you know that God 
at times wants to bring us into situations where the odds are stacked against us, where pressure is mounting, where we have no solution to the situation, where we have no plan of attack or action, but all we can do is say, God, you got to do this. Do you know that God loves to bring us to those situations? Why? So that he can show himself strong, so that he can deliver us, so that he gets all the glory. And don't you hate being in those situations? Aren't they the worst? But yet, how we can look at those situations and say, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but this becomes an opportunity for you to do the work so that you get all the glory. And if we're willing simply to be those vessels that God will work through to showcase his power and might, then we're going to see great things happen. And we need to be those that are willing to walk by faith, not by sight, not by the numbers we have. Because when we bring God into the picture, into the equation, when we have God on our side, we're always in the majority. The Midianites are failing to see that though there's only 300 of them, well, they've got, they've got God on their side. And the Midianites are going to find themselves the ones that are being outnumbered. Well, chapters 9 and 10 um, are, are easy to sum up. Well, we didn't get into the, even the, the whole victory, but again, you know the story. It's just so cool, you know, because Gideon takes the men and he tells them to take their um, pitchers, you know, put a, a, a torch in it, and um, they're going to throw it over into the camp, and these torches are going to break, they're going to blow their trumpets, and, and they do that. I mean, this is like, you're not going to see this in any kind of military battle plan, right? I mean, this is the... This is the way to not fight, right? Not to go up against enemy. But, but Gideon does something so odd, and yet God just turns all the minions against each other. And they just start killing off one another. They start to flee. There's this chaos. And soon they don't know what's going on. They hear the trumpets, and all of a sudden, like, you know, flames coming up, and they just don't know what's going on, and they panic. And God brings a great victory for Gideon and for the Israelites that day. So awesome. Well, chapters 9 and 10, Gideon's son Abimelech decides, I'm going to become the next judge. I'm going to be the next leader. He wasn't called by God. He was an opportunist. He was ambitious. And he had a lust for power. And he ends up murdering his brothers all on one stone and assumes power. And now he's about to reap what he's sown. He there were 70 of them. One of them escapes. He kills like, like 69 uh, of, these, of these brothers now on this stone. And... He's just looking to be the leader, but he's going to find out he's going to reap what he sows. A parable is given in chapter 9, verse 8 to 15, and it's the oldest known parable. It's a parable about trees, and it reveals Abimelech's style of leadership. It's hostile, and it's fury. He's likened to the bramble, and the bramble is good for nothing. It, it, it doesn't bear any fruit. doesn't provide any shade. It's really only good for kindling in a fire, and that's kind of what Abimelech was like. He's only good to be just kind of creating a fire, right? Well, let's go to the end of his life. Chapter 9, verse 52 to 54. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it. And he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Verse 53. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. 
So his young man thrust him through and he died. Here's what's interesting. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Jesus said, whatever measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. He killed 70 kids on a stone and a stone fell on his head. Perfect and poetic. And even to his very last breath, we see a man so full of pride that he doesn't want it said how he's gonna die. You come and kill me, lest people say a woman killed me. He's so full of pride. Even at his dying last breath, he's like, I can't let that happen. I can't let that be said of me. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. This here's really the downfall of unhealthy ambition, uh, of running ahead of the Lord, because it'll leave you with a massive headache if not brought under his will and rule. Gonna leave you hurting, and, and Abimelech is a, is a testament of that. Well, chapter 10 introduces us to the seventh and eight judges, Tola and Jair. Just brief descriptions about them. We're going to move on. Chapters 11 and 12 deal with the ninth judge, uh, Jephthah. And he was a man that was used to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Ammonites. Look at Judges 11. Chapter 11, we'll pick it up in verse 29. Chapter 11, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it'll be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from uh, Arrow, as far as Minneth, 20 cities, and to Abel, Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Now, Jephthah had the spirit of the Lord come upon him, but he's still looking for a little assurance. So he makes a, a vow with God, basically saying, if you deliver us, then I'll offer up the first thing that comes out of my house. Ever done that? Ever look to the Lord? You, you just, you know, you just want the Lord to help you. And so you'll say, Lord, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And you kind of try to strike a little bargain with the Lord, a little vow with the Lord. God, if you would just do this, then I will do all of this for you, right? Listen, we don't need to butter up God. God's already done everything for us. And, and our lives should be simply lived in complete devotion to him. Again, that's not a, a, a religious duty. That's an honor and privilege for the very one, Jesus, that gave his life so sacrificially and fully for us so we could just experience life. He's given us everything we need. We have to rest in the fact that he's a good God. He's a loving God that's gonna see us through and take care of us. We need to stand on his grace and goodness and not seek to have to try to make some kind of vow with the Lord to try to butter him up or try to, try to you know, draw him into doing what we want him to do. And so the story with Jephthah is kind of a weird one because when Jephthah returns home, the first person that comes out of his house, the one that he said, I will give as a sacrifice to you, Lord, is his daughter. Comes walking out of the house and he's greatly grieved. Well, did he sacrifice his daughter? No, I don't believe that happened. Some will try to say that's what happened, but the idea is more that he was saying, I will consecrate, dedicate 
to you, God, that first thing that comes out of my house. And in so doing with his daughter coming out, he was greatly grieved because this meant now that he would give her over fully to the Lord, to where she would never be married, she would never have children, and in that day, that was a real heavy kind of shameful thing. He would never enjoy seeing his own um, lineage continue on. So Jephthah was, was grieved at this, and it just brought great shame. Well, the men of Ephraim, they try to share in the spoils of victory that Jephthah had secured, even though they weren't part of the victory. They did the same with Gideon. In chapter 8, verse 1, they came to Gideon and said, hey, how come you haven't invited us down to fight? You know, And, and so we should get a, a part of this, and Gideon was very diplomatic. But Jephthah, you know, they come and say, hey, we want a part of the spoils of what you've got. Jephthah's not going to be as diplomatic. In fact, he takes exception, and he takes out 42,000 of those from Ephraim. They're gone. They're done. They died, and, and they're buried there. And so Jephthah takes some serious action. Again, the book of Judges is the kind of thing we see when, when everyone just simply does what is right in their own eyes. Well, the end of chapter 12, we see a list of three more judges, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon, okay? Uh, brings us down now to the last judge that we see, and probably the most famous judge that we have. He is one of the most interesting characters in the whole Bible, speaking of Samson, of course, And unlike the other judges, Samson had no army or team that came alongside him to fight in the battle. Samson was an army of one, a one-man wrecking crew, only he was a man that brought wreckage to his own life. He was a man of incredible privilege, great potential, yet he squandered most of it through his own fleshly appetite. You could say of Samson, he was a real he-man with a she problem, and that was Samson. Now, Samson's mom, as the story unfolds here in chapter 13, was barren, all right? And so they're visited again by the angel of the Lord and said that they'll have a son, but this son is going to be special. You're to dedicate him to the Lord. He's not to have any, any wine, no fruit of the vines to touch his lips or any, uh, any other similar drink, no unclean food, and you're not to shave his head. No razor shall touch his head. This is what's known as the Nazarite vow a vow of of dedication and consecration to the Lord. And so Samson is a man that's going to be given over to this Nazarite vow, dedicated to the Lord. Now, Samson's battles were against Israel's kind of chief enemy, the Philistines, right? There were no, and they, the, the Philistines, were no problem for him at all. But the thing that really posed problems for Samson was himself. Because Samson's a man that we'll see, he's driven by impulse, by lust, rage, and ego. He wanted what he wanted, when he wanted it, and expected others to provide it for him in a hurry. Even with his own father, he sees a woman that he loves, and he's telling his dad, I want that woman. His dad's like, oh, come on, you shouldn't marry a a Philistine woman. And, And Samson's just like demanding of his father to comply with him. And when he didn't get his way, bad things happened. So he marries a Philistine girl for her looks, but ends up killing most of the Philistine groomsmen in their wedding party over some clothing. The Philistines responded by marrying her off to the best man. Great loyalty by the Philistines there. And Samson retaliates now by tying the tails of a bunch of foxes together, placing torches between their tails, lighting the torches, and sending the blazing foxes through the Philistine crops. Now, they couldn't get back at him, so what the Philistines did is they burned his wife and father-in-law. 
in their own house. Samson then responded by slaughtering a thousand of them with a donkey's jawbone. He had the physical strength of a superhero, but the spiritual character of a wimp. He was not at all acting the way that God was desiring him to. And in all his ways, Samson more closely resembled an enemy of God than a man of God. He was selfish, vengeful, violent, and yet, amazingly, God still used him to accomplish his purposes, which was, of course, punishing the Philistines for their wrongful treatment towards the Israelites. Samson didn't turn his temptations over to God or trust God to be his strength. He thought he was entirely self-sufficient, needing no accountability, and, and finally, it caught up with him. He fell hard for a Philistine woman whose name was Delilah, who nagged him into giving away the secrets of his Nazarite vow, particularly the cutting of his hair. Now, understand something. There was nothing magical about the hair of Samson, all right? There was nothing important about that. No matter how long and flowing and silky it was, it was doing nothing for him. Hair is quite overrated, men, all right? Can I get an amen? All right. This had nothing to do with Samson's strength, of course, all right? The real secret was in the commitment to the Lord that the hair represented. As long as he takes his Nazarite vow, no razor was to touch his head. And it was in the commitment of being dedicated to the Lord that provided really the, the strength for Samson. And when that hair was cut, it signaled a break in that vow or dedication of the Lord. Make no mistake about it, it hadn't been there for a while, but God showed mercy on him until he let his guard down and allowed the enemy to come in and take action. Look at what we read in chapter 16, verse 21. Chapter 16, verse 21. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. So here we see a fitting end to this life that was ruled by the passions of the flesh. Make no mistake about it, that was the life of Samson. A man of great potential, but squandered it. Squandered it simply to satisfy his own desires. Married a Philistine woman, went into the house of a harlot later, then marries Delilah, another Philistine woman, who, who coaxes him into revealing his secret, dupes him, has the Philistines come in and bind him. And now this is what we see happening at the end of Samson's life. He's bound with bronze fetters, eyes are are taken out, and he's just grinding in the prison. Listen, it's a fitting picture of what sin does. You'll find yourself grinding in circles. You'll find yourself blinded, blinded because of your sin and, and from seeing what is right. It brings judgment. That's that picture of bronze, right? Bronze in the Bible, a picture of judgment. This is what sin does. It blinds you from seeing what is right and true. It brings you under bondage to where you're just grinding in circles. A lot of people say, man, life is a grind. It is when, when you allow sin to have its way and to run its course in your life. But Jesus, he brings freedom and deliverance and sight to the blind. 
when we live for Jesus, when we're abiding in Jesus, man, it, life is not to be this way. But notice this. It tells us in verse 22 that his hair began to grow again. Oh, how I pray for that to happen. But Samson here reminds us that it's never too late to make a decision to serve the Lord. Because like I said, Samson's life was one that could have been, should have been, but just never was. He continued to slip into sin and compromise, but at the end of his life, he decides, I'm going to give it all. I'm going to give it all to the Lord. And he did that by giving his very life. Because what happened now, as you read on in chapter 16, that the Philistines were having this great feast and sacrifice to their god, Dagon, this fish god. They're on the coast, right? And so they have this fish god, Dagon. And so they have this great feast in their temple, and they bring Samson out. They're like, Samson, come and perform for us. Do that thing with the fox's tails again. That was really cool. He wants to perform for him, but Samson comes up, and he gets himself placed between these two pillars. And what does he do? The last little bit of strength that he's got as God restores that to him, graciously, he brings the house down, literally. Pushes the, 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 the pillars and the whole temple comes crashing down on everybody to where 3,000 people died that day. God allowed Samson to have the greatest victory at the end of his life. Because Samson was a man that at the end of his life decided, I'm gonna give it all over to the Lord. Understand that, that it's amazing because Samson, man, he lived a life of, uh, of just squandered possibilities. And yet, God is the God of second, third, hundred chances. Where when we decide to give it to the Lord, God continues to bring us in and, and give us another opportunity. Give us another chance. Don't think you squandered your life away. Whatever's been done in the past or, or not done, give it over to the Lord and choose this day to serve him. I think Samson becomes a great reminder of that for us. Well, chapter 17 and 21, like I said, the ending of this book, it's <laughs> it doesn't get any better. It gets worse and worse. And these are accounts that I don't even want to spend a lot of time in, but it's a sad way to end this book. It's a picture of what Society looks like when God is just completely removed. In chapter 17, we see this idolatry of a single family headed up by a man named Micah who lived in Ephraim. Chapter 18 is the idolatry of a whole tribe, the tribe of Dan, who migrates from south to north and destroys a people group, and he sets up false images now. Chapter 19 is the story of the entire nation falling into idolatry and the reaction to one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And here things get really, really bad. To sum up chapter 19, we see a Levite who takes a concubine, which the Levite tribes were not to do. They were dedicated to the Lord. They weren't to have a, a concubine. Well, he takes a concubine. She ends up cheating on him and then runs back to her father's house. Well, he goes back to retrieve her. To retrieve her. Now he's migrating back up toward Ephraim to go to Shiloh, the house of the Lord. And it's nighttime, they're on their journey, him and his concubine, and they decide, let's, let's take a, a rest. They stop in a little town called Gibeah, and he's going to spend the night in the open square. But a Gibeonite man says, oh no, you're not going to stay the night here. 
this open square business, that's, that's trouble. That's a weird place. Come and stay with me. So he takes the concubine and this man, and they go to stay in, in this man's house in Gibeah. While he's there, the men of the city come and surround this house, knocking on the door, asking for this man to bring out this stranger that is with him. Just very similar to what we see happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And these men come, and they want to have this man come out and just have their way with him. Well, the man of the house, under the kind, and, and understand, what he says is like, no, you, you can't do that, but I have a daughter here. I've got a concubine here of this man. I will send them out. You can have your way with them. Now, you look at that, and you hear that, and you go, how can that be? That is so sick. But under the kind of, uh, of traditions and customs of that day, when you showed hospitality to someone, and you brought somebody in your house, well, you were completely responsible for them. And again, the higher kind of order went to the man, sadly, there. And so this man in the house is thinking, I got to protect this man at all costs, even at the expense of, of my daughter or his concubine. So the concubine ends up getting sent out, and the men at that city just abuse her all night until the morning, and the man, the Levite, Wondering where she is, opens the door, and there she is at the threshold of the door. And he picks her up to take her in, and she's dead. It abused her so much, she died. And so this man, this Levite, ends up cutting this corpse into 12 pieces to send to all the tribes of Israel to show them the depravity of what's taking place here in Gibeah, this, in this tribe of Benjamin. Well, what ends up happening is basically a civil war breaks out now. And the tribe of Benjamin is almost annihilated because they're going to go after these men of Gibeah, but the, but the Benjamites, the whole tribe, doesn't want anything to do with it, right? And so they are almost annihilated, but then all the rest of Israel starts to feel kind of bad, like, oh no, we may have just almost wiped out a tribe. We, we vowed not to give our, our daughters to them in marriage. They're not going to have any kind of longevity. Now what are we going to do? So they, they concoct this weird plan where they're going to go and they're going to take some of these women from, um, oh, I think it was from, I can't remember now. Let me see here if I remember. Um, okay, it's not really important right now. From Shiloh, the daughters of Shiloh. That they're going to go and lay in wait, the Benjamites, and take these daughters of Shiloh for them to have wives and children and continue on their tribe. It, it just, what we see happening it's just one complete mess taking place in Israel. All through the book of Judges, things are just spiraling further and further out of control. And again, this is the case when you have no leader, no God, and everyone does what is right in their eyes. Look at that there in chapter 21, verse 25. It's the last verse, and it summarizes up the book so well. In those days, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me read to you here what Timothy Mackey wrote. And he said, And so we've hit upon the major contribution of the book of Judges to this storyline of the Old Testament. We'll soon come to the rise of David, King David. While David in many ways lived up to the Moses model, he too proved unfaithful and unjust. Remember the Bathsheba incident. Thus the book of Judges points to David and beyond him to the promised messianic king from the line of David. What God's people mainly need 
isn't a king who can rescue them from their political enemies, but a king who can rescue them from themselves. It's that king that prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel will point us to when we start reading their books. But for now, it's enough to realize that the book of Judges is sowing the, feud, the, the seeds of future messianic hope by showing us how the Israelites have hit rock bottom without such a king. And I think that needs to be the, 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 the main takeaway for us here tonight. That this is what happens when we take God out of things, when we fail to give Jesus his proper place. Because what we see happening with all these judges being raised up for a specific purpose, we see with the ultimate deliverer for us, Jesus Christ, who stepped in, in our depravity, in our sin, in our rebellion, to set us free from the repercussions of sin. Jesus Christ has has done that for us. He yielded himself, gave himself up for us so that we could live a life that is set apart for God, so that we could be set free from sin, delivered. Jesus becomes now our great judge, our great deliverer that has set us free. And we praise the Lord for that. Well, let me pray. And then uh, we'll end with just kind of, we didn't start with our video. I thought we'll just wrap up with it just as a little bit of a, a summary now of the things that we've discussed and a, a refresher. And so um, I'll pray. We'll watch the video and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Well, Lord, we thank you for our time here and thank you for this word that we can go through. And it's a, it's a heavy book. It's a sad book to see the, how quick Israel turned away from you and, and where it got them. And it's not pretty. It's not good. And it, it reminds us of our need for a deliverer, and you have your son that was waiting to be just that, your son who came to this world to indeed set us free, and we have experienced that, and we thank you here tonight for that, Jesus. Thank you for the life you've given us, for the forgiveness of sin, for the grace and the, and the compassion you've had upon us. When we least deserved it, you came and, and set us free that we might live for you. And so strengthen us and help us to do just that. Let us not allow sin to have a foothold. Let us not walk in compromise. Let us see that you have something far better for us and you've given us the power and the victory to live that out through your work and salvation. And so lead us on now, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.